Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome back to the Couchside Judges. I'm Scott Fontana. You can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fontana. And I'm Dan Urban. You can find me on Twitter as well at Dan Urban MMA. You can follow the podcast at Couchside Judges, and you can subscribe wherever you listen, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us that five-star review. It looks great for us. We appreciate it. We're going to talk about judging in MMA, so you might as well learn the criteria, which can be found at abcboxing.com. So, Dan, you're pumped about this episode, right? I'm very excited about this. This is, I think, going to be one of the finest hour plus. And I think it is. Actually, I think this is our longest show, Dan. This will be our longest one, probably. This is our longest yeah. show. And I think, we, uh, I think we're justified in doing so because this is the day that we welcome to the Couchside Judges Mark Goddard, the venerable referee from England. Yeah, this this was a fun episode. He's such a nice guy. He was terrific. You know, we we already spoke. We already had this conversation. Uh, we're recording this intro uh, post conversation. We'll get to it in just a few minutes. You'll hear uh, what Mark had to say to us and, and and inform us about all things that he is is an expert at the, the one of the foremost knowledgeable people in the world in terms of officiating mixed martial arts and it really was a thrill to speak with him and thrilled to learn from him you i picked up a lot did you oh i, t- I learned i learned a ton uh talking to him it, it was it was yeah. really a pleasure i think you guys will too i think i think there are a lot of people who appreciate what he can inform uh about officiating in general and 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 especially you know a lot of other topics that he's involved in so you know and it seemed like he could talk forever but uh you know why don't we just jump right into it welcome to the Couchside judges mark thanks for taking the time to chat with us no problem. I've heard um, I've heard good things. I've Excellent. Good well, we'd like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so before we even dive in, I this is going to come a little bit out of left field, but I know you're you're from Birmingham, right? Uh, my English ancestry comes from Birmingham. They used to live in an area. I think it's called Digbeth on Bradford Street. Do you know anything about this area? Are you from anywhere near yeah, there? Yeah, Digbeth very well. It's right in the middle of that's right in the city center. That is Digbeth. Interesting. Interesting. I've never gotten over there. I'd love to be able to see. They used to have like, they used to, you know, they used to be merchants and and on Bradford Street. So I would love to kind of see what it looked like there one day. I don't know how much it looks yeah. the same as it did in the 1850s, but. Yeah, Digbeth is one of the, because it's in the middle, it's like one of the oldest parts of Birmingham. It was like, um, it was very industrial back in the day. Yes. But it's um, some good pubs. Some oh good, yeah, some All good, right. yeah, some good <laughs> old world pubs. It's what, um, what's a what's a like shout one out. Uh, in in Digbeth, there's a famous pub called the Spotted Dog. I remember that as at 16 years old, going in there trying to sneak in and buy pints at 16. <laughs> but Digbeth is known like there's some little quirky, really really old pubs. In fact, one of the oldest. I think it's still there um, on, on the main Stratford Road. When you come out of Digbeth, it's one of the oldest. I think it's still the oldest building, if not Birmingham, one of the oldest in, in quite a distance. Can't remember the name of it, but yeah, Digbeth is it's like a trendy area now. Interesting. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's funny. I'm I'm definitely gonna have to check that. As as the other thing too, because like when you haven't been from the country, you don't know like is it like like a shady part of town or anything like that. So like knowing that, like oh yeah, I could go visit it. Yeah, it's got little shady parts, but you'll be all right. In <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, but again, you're actually, you're not originally from Birmingham. You're from Glasgow, correct? Yeah, I was born in Scotland. I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, Scottish parents. 
um, but I actually moved, well, my family moved to Birmingham when I was uh, just a young boy. So, you know, 90% of my life, I went to school and, and grew up in Birmingham, and this is where I now call home. Sure, sure. But I, I, I actually, the reason I bring it up, though, is my grandmother is from nearby Johnston. Oh, I know Johnston, yeah. That's no, just Johnston, outside yeah. Glasgow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you go up there very often? Do you like you have relatives still up here. there? Yeah, I still have family in Scotland. Like all, all of um all of my mom's side of the family are still majorly in Scotland. But uh, it's um I still go up now and again. And I uh, used to go up like I used to work with a local promotion up in Scotland, but I haven't I haven't been um they haven't been doing shows for a couple of years. But Scotland is beautiful. Like it's obviously it's a tiny country, but very historical. Glasgow is amazing. Edinburgh is amazing. But then when you go out and travel, like Scotland in itself, the Scottish Highlands, and it's absolutely breathtaking. It's an amazing country, believe me. I can't wait to visit one day. So, Mark, one thing we love to do with our guests is ask about the origins of their MMA journey. Uh, what got you into the sport? Um, <laughs> I've been fortunate enough to be around with, with, with MMA in um, – in the UK pretty much since its inception. Um, you know, I, since I went back into training um, as a youngster, you know, I was training in various martial arts and never really took anything serious. And it wasn't until I, I moved house. Um, and when I moved house, my then next door neighbor, he was a traditional jujitsu instructor. And this is before the days of, you know, before we knew what Brazilian jujitsu was. Okay. And then he started talking to me like, you know, everything was by fate. And um, he asked if I'd come and train. And I said, yes. And the rest is history. Um, and then he was the first person. It was like, it was like the old cliche. You know, he was the first person that gave me some videotapes, UFC one to three, you know, and then we're watching, um, you know, a young skinny Brazilian by the name of Hoist Gracie choking people out left, right, and center. And we thought we were doing the same thing in, in, in traditional jujitsu. And then that was quite, you know, that's well over 20 years ago. And, um, and, and my journey, that's when I went back to training and, and, and I never stopped, you know, I've, I've been involved in the sport ever since. That's so cool. So, you know, and obviously you ended up going into fighting yourself and I heard that you were an animal in the cage back in your day, right? Before you hung up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I had, um, I wouldn't change anything for the world. You know, I was, you know, that my journey with MMA, I've kind of, I've, I've been around it for a long time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to say that I've seen and done it all because that's impossible. But I'm, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I've been around the sport, mixed martial arts before it really took hold or people even knew what it was. You know, back in, when I was first fighting MMA, there, there wasn't even any cages in the UK. We were fighting on open mats and tatamis. Oh, wow. And wow. The, first, the first cage in the UK was actually 2002. So, you know, the turn of the millennium, and then just after the millennium, when we were competing, it was either on a tatami or, or in a ring. And then 2002, that's when the first, um, that's when the first uh, cage were actually down in Portsmouth, it was it was actually Cage Warriors. It was the very first ever cage. I showed you how long you guys know Cage Warriors, right? Of course. Right. 
that's when when they first came to town. They Cage Warriors have been around since two thousand and two. They're going to be coming up to a twenty year anniversary soon, wow. and still going strong. That's really cool. So, what what kind of fighter were you? What like what was your style like? What was your mentality like? How did you approach bouts? What what were you known as? I guess. I mean, like. Uh, I was more because I was wrestling too. You know, that's another thing that people didn't like in Birmingham. We were quite lucky because um, wrestling, uh, in particular freestyle wrestling, it's a very, very small sport here. It's a very niche sport in the UK. But Birmingham, were, we were quite fortunate. We had we had quite a hotbed and we had, um, you know, our wrestling coach, Jim, he's still on. I mean, he's 83 years old now. Um, and he's like a, as old school as they get. Um you know, like I said, from, from my fighting time, like when you said mentality, that, that's kind of what let me down a little bit because the, I, w- I went into it in detail once with, um, I, I'd done another podcast with a, a guy called Daniel Strauss, not the Daniel Strauss who used to fight at Bellator. Oh, okay. There's another, there's another Daniel Strauss who lives here. Very, very good um, a jiu-jitsu guy. Like he's world-class, he's really good. And I kind of went into the whole journey, you know, the mental aspect of fighting that I used to struggle with, you know, the, the the psychology of it and stuff. And then I would be very good one week or one fight and then disastrous the next. And it led to me, it was around about 2005. Um, <laughs> I'm retiring in 2005. That says how long ago. And then I stopped and I just, I went back to, I just went to wrestling. I did done boxing and wrestling for almost two years. Then I came back. And I came back at a light, you know, I was a light heavy. People think I'm a big guy, you know, like stature-wise. I'm not really, you know, when you look at true heavyweights, they're, they're true big guys. I came back at a, at a lighter weight, as a light heavyweight. I never lost at, at that weight, but I was getting older and injuries. And then the refing was taken off because that's something else with me. You know, the whole journey into refing was completely by accident. I didn't plan on doing it. It, it kind of found me and then... I believe that was for a reason, and and here we are. I'm glad you brought that up because actually that was one of our next questions. Was what what kind of brought you to it? You're saying it was by accident. What, how did you yeah. how did you get there, and how did it really convince you that this is where you wanted to go with with kind of your martial arts uh, career? I guess 2004. Um, I was due to compete. I was fighting on an event. <clears throat> I got injured, um, which meant I couldn't fight. Obviously. And the, the, the event was run by um, two friends of mine, actually the still friends of mine, but they owned the gym that we all trained out of at the time. And um, I turned up, something happened to one of the other refs and they didn't turn up or he wasn't going to ref. And then Steve, uh, the, the owner, he turned around to me and said, you got a ref. He said, it wasn't even like a request. It was like, it was like an order. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, right, okay, whatever. And I just, and I think what it was, because obviously at the time, you know, it was such a niche sport in the UK, but all the fighters knew me because, you know, we were still quite a small scene. And I just, I just went in and done it. And it just all kind of came to me and it kind of took over. And the rest is history. You know, it's... How did you, well, how did you like, I mean, you hadn't really been trained as, a, as an official or anything like that. Like, what did, what did you do to just kind of wing it or... It, I just went with I just went with my instincts because obviously as a as a competitor you know obviously understood the sport knew the rules or as in enough at that point to get by and it just that's why I've always kind of said to people like um, when people talk about you know 
do officials, referees, do you have to have been an ex-fighter? This, no. You know, I was just, it was good for me because I didn't know at the time, obviously, the qualities that you have as a person are, are more important, you know? You, you can think yourself, there's a lot of fighters out there who are probably the last person you'd want to be a referee in your fight, but then there's, there's some other guys. And I've always said that if you're, if you're not a practitioner of the sport, either recreationally, as a ref and a judge, you're going to struggle. But the whole thing that I need to put to bed is about when people ask, oh, you ex-fighters should be this. No, that is that is not true at all. It doesn't have to be an ex-fighter. It's not an automatic rite of passage that will make you a good official. Uh, I was just I was just one of the lucky ones, I guess. And I believe in fate. And I believe that those things were meant to happen for me. And like I say, here we are. Right on. So most people know you as a ref, but you do have a handful of entries on MMA decisions as a judge. Uh, why don't we see you in the chair more often? Because um, obviously I, I am a ref, but I teach. Obviously, this I live and breathe the sport and have done for. I've lived and breathed MMA for in excess of twenty years. You know, I teach uh, officials globally, referees and judges, and. Like some of the guys you've probably spoke to or tell you, like I'm, I'm like a, I'm, I'm like a tough taskmaster for them, you know. We're, but we're always talking, we're always communicating, because all I ever want is the best, you know. I, I take it, you know, I've took this seriously and seriously enough that I've been fortunate, and I say fortunate, you know, not lucky, because I've just been fortunate enough, you know, if you apply yourself to something, and um. And, and this is my life, you know, outside of my family, you know, and mixed martial arts is my living. It, it's how I provide. Uh, and that, that's taken a long time to get there. But in answer to the question with with the judging side, you know, that, that's the, you know, if, if if you're going to, if you're going to teach people, you know, you, you've got to be able to walk the walk. I could go to any event and at the drop of a hat, somebody says, Mark, will you, uh, can you judge this fight? And of course I can do it, you know? I know the sport inside out, but that doesn't mean you know everything because I don't believe there's such a thing, especially in a sport that's as still as juvenile and formative as, as MMA. You know, there's, mm. there's too many things that will... I, I go to some countries sometimes and I meet people and officials and they go, ah, oh, like, I know everything. I'm, wow, you know? <laughs> Maybe that's just the language barrier, but this is the thing with... The unique thing about MMA, you know, things will happen um, in, in fights, in, in and around fights that you could never script and, and never plan. I Obviously, I love judging. I'm always teaching judges. I'm always communicating with judges. And like the core set of guys, like I said, from some of the guys you've probably spoke to as well, we're always communicating, always swapping notes, always trying to be the best, always trying to learn off each other. It's a never-ending thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and education really does seem to be a very important part of, of this sport to you. You know, you're, you're already talking about this. My understanding is that you held uh, your – I don't know if it was your first or the first or just the first in Birmingham, but uh, there was a, a seminar, a judging and refereeing seminar in 2010. Uh, ben Cartledge was mentioning this, and he wanted to make sure – that uh, we actually mentioned just how uh, influential on him you are. He wanted us to make sure that this was mentioned. Uh, what what can you tell us about kind of this first seminar and how influential it was to everybody who was there? 
Yeah, I mean that, that's nice to hear because you know Ben Ben's a Ben's a great guy. You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough. I'll use the word lucky there because you know it's kind of like with the guys in the UK, the guys who have elevated and, and become great officials, we're all good friends. You know, and that's not that's that's not a coincidence because for me it was like, like when I done that first seminar in the UK, it was because they're as you know, you know the sport is unregulated over here you know that there isn't athletic commissions or regulatory bodies which is not always a good thing mm-hmm. um you know but but in general obviously everybody always used to look west you know because that's where the sport was entirely formative people are gonna lose their shit and you know what about brazil valley too though what about shooter and pancreas we know there's been derivatives of various styles of mixed martial arts in history no one can take that away but for want of a better description and when you're talking to the layman, you know, MMA is that is that acronym. It's that three-letter word. You know, you say to a guy in the pub, MMA, they're like, what? If you say UFC, they're instantly going to know what you're talking about. So coming back to, you know, and obviously with the unified rules, etc., I, I, was, I was a staunch advocate of them and realizing that, listen, stop trying to buck the trend. We don't need to do anything different. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. The sport's here and the sport can be recognized. And that's kind of what I was trying to do because it's it's still so fragmented. But in the UK, I kind of, I was like on a one-man crusade to try and drag people kicking and screaming onto the same page and trying to get them to follow because there were so many different rule sets even here in the UK. And I managed to get hold of, so many people, you know, um, whether they liked it or not, and, and and dragged them to it, kicking and screaming. But yeah, that first seminar that I'd done for refs and judges, that was an amazing day. And uh, like you said, you know, when, when Ben was there and, you know, Ben, he's not the only one, obviously, but he's, um, this is the thing, you know, with judging, as you know, it's the biggest problem with officiating in MMA is we are dogged in milestone fashion by misconception and untruth. That's the biggest problem we have. I would agree. 100% it's the, it's the biggest problem we have. It's the misconceptions and, and the fact that people don't understand. They don't necessarily have to understand. You know, we're not, you can't expect, if you go to a football game or a soccer game over here and there's 60,000 people in the stadium, do you think all 60,000 of them know the rules inside and out? No, no. they don't. And they, and they don't have to, but for MMA, it's just <laughs> for some reason, I, I, I can't quite, I think it's like I said, the reason I think it's like that is because the, the sport is still so young. It's still evolving and we're getting better and it's, and, and it's still formative and there's still a lot of antiquated older ideas and notions around that it's going to take us quite a while to, to, to get through and get over. Well, for what it's worth, Ben actually wanted to make sure the the quote I used for, from him was that Mark Goddard taught me how to judge fights properly. So when you hear that, I'm sure that fills you with a lot of pride. That does, because Ben, listen, I would walk into Ben Ben Cartledge. Ben Ben's not a good judge, you know. Ben is a great judge, and that's how I differentiate. I think there's a lot of good officials. There's not many great officials, but there's teams like in the UK. I, I would walk into I would walk into any fight on the planet with a team of, uh, you know, an all UK team of judges with Ben, with Mark Collette, with David Leatherby. You guys know, obviously you, you guys are, 
are well in on this and you're good advocates of it in like in, in, in the US, the guys like Sal D'Amato, Derek Cleary, Mike Bell, Chris, you know, these guys have been around. There's not many others really on the, you think, you know, in a world with seven and a half billion people, not saying that MMA reaches seven and a half billion people, but th there's very few others. And uh, yeah, look, we have got some absolute top of the tree, world-class professional judges um, in this country. And, and Ben is a, a, a fantastic example of that. So when you're training these, uh, the refs and the judges, what are your biggest points of emphasis? Like I said, misconceptions. Okay. You know, because if you go to, if I go to the Middle East, for instance, where the sport could still be, you know, to them, or not brand new, but very formative, or I'll go to Russia. Russia is a great example because, and again, they've, they've been used to doing things in a in, in their way and it's not saying that everything you do is wrong it's just different you know so it's like it's that slow process of trying to get everybody like i said it may not even be in my lifetime when we get this sport finally to sing and sit as one that we have it's kind of it's what i say when i'm doing the seminars and i say to people you know i'll take our closest relative and from a combat sports perspective that's boxing because it's the easiest parallel to draw. And to, and to look at the differences between us, like you have amateur boxing and professional boxing. How do we know? Well, there's a visual aesthetic there that's really simple to understand. I'll see amateurs, boxers with vests or head guards, bigger gloves, but you've got to be pretty keen to understand that. And, and then I'll see professional boxing. I'll recognize it. I can watch professional boxing in Brazil and be in Sweden. I don't need to speak the language. I don't have to understand but I can tell what's happening. I can watch it in China. I can watch it in Canada. The sport is the same. They have a single unified rule set. If somebody during a boxing match suddenly jumps, dives on someone's legs for a single, I know there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. with, with, with MMA, we are still, we're 75 years behind that, 85 years behind that, because we have so many different, but I try and say to people, you know, that's okay. Don't lose sight of the fact that we're a young sport, we're still learning, we're still getting better, and we're trying to build the sport. It's almost like an inverted pyramid. That's how I describe it, you know? It's because you've got the, the you know, the, the UFC's at the top. Let's make no bones about it. And they are the recognised brand of, of the sport, like I just said. They're the Coca-Cola, you know, the Hoover. Mm -hmm. People don't refer to it as, uh, you know, they don't refer to it as the entity, they refer to it as the brand. And it's rightly true. so, you know, because... They've, they've led the way. So beyond knowing misconceptions, is there any advice you would give those at home who've been unable to get started in their journey to becoming officials but are interested, especially those who have been impacted by the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the most, it is the most common question I get asked. You know, I get so many, honestly, thousands of messages and people say, you know, it, it quite makes me laugh because Benote, it's funny because, even stuff like that, you know, you'll get you'll get people like very polite. Hey, Mister Goddard, Eddie, you know, I'm I'm here. I'm this and that. And then I'll get people like, Yo, Goddard. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Do you think? I'm, first of all, do you think I'm gonna give you a response? <laughs> Probably not. You know, if I walk in to apply for a job and I say to the manager, Hey, yo, what's up? Ch chances are, I'm not gonna get through the front door. But if I approach the manager in the right way, we're probably going to get off to a better start. But, all, but 
all joking aside, I actually put a video out on my Instagram um, last time I was in Fight Island, just explaining to people, okay, it's fantastic that you want to get into this thing, but like me and you know Ben and the guys, there seems to be a notion when it comes to um, being a, an official in MMA that people think it's just something they can have a go at. You know, they think it just, you know, one day I could do that, you know, and it's, and that's not the case. I explain to people that just like any career or any vocation or any industry, it takes time. You know, you're going to have to craft this thing over months and months and years and years. Just take your time. Like I said, depending on the country in which you live, um, if you have a, a regulatory body or an athletic commission, those are the first people you've got to make contact with. But it's all about educating yourself. And I know it's tough. I understand it's hard. But you've got to be able to educate yourself and prove your competency. And that's that's not exclusive to being an official in MMA. That's the same for any job, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So you, you actually, I'm glad you mentioned kind of this video that you'd made on uh, and posted on social media because it was just over the weekend, you shared that you're filming a new project, right? You, you kind of teased it, I guess, to a degree. Um, yeah. I, it sounds like, and you know, I'm interpreting this, it sounds like it has to do with educating officials or something like that. Am I on the right track? Is there anything you could say about it right now? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exactly that because obviously one, one thing this pandemic has taught us um, in the last year is that things are now being done differently, you know? Um, whereas traditionally, you know, if I'm training officials, I'm going to be there present with them. Um, and I like to, you know, look into the whites of their eyes and gauge the conversation back, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, in, in, in today's world, that's not always the easiest thing to do. So we have to look at ways of getting the correct information to people in remote places or faraway places. And obviously with, with the power of today's technology and, and and having various mediums to do that, that's kind of where I've struck the chord in, in, in my mind to be able to start offering that to, to people. It's obviously it's going to take a lot of work because it's going to be protected content, of course. You know, this is not going to be out there in the public domain. It's just, for me, it's it's kind of, it's like a service almost, you know, it's sure. a country that's quite some way away from, from mainland Europe or, or from the US, and they have no feasible way of, of getting somewhere or understanding that, you know, I think it's just a, it's a fair tool to be able to, to give people. I have to be very careful with it, obviously, because I have to make the distinction. You know, it's like, <laughs> we know what the world's like and you know what social media is like, because what we can't do is obviously you can't you can't grade or assess somebody to be an MMA official entirely online. That's quite a tall order. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, so people are, oh, fucking, oh, God, oh, he's grading people online. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's two very distinct parts, okay? Uh, obviously, for to, to be a good official, in particular with a referee, okay, you will have, you will have a theoretical base, a knowledge base, and you'll have a practical base as in watching or demonstrating that you are fit for purpose, you're knowledgeable and you're competent to do the actual live role. That's that's the part that you can't assess remotely. You have to be able to see, you have to present a body of work, etc. But there is absolutely nothing preventing 
the detailed explanation behind the theoretical knowledge needed. That's the part that we're missing. And that's the part that I want to capitalize on and make sure that it can be offered to a, a much wider audience. I think that's great. I, I love that. Um, and you're you're actually also involved with uh, the IMMAF as well. You're you're the director of regulatory affairs, correct? That's correct. I'm I only have a very base level knowledge of the IMMAF, and I think that the I'm probably of the rare people in America who have even heard of this organization. What can you tell our listeners who are very unfamiliar with it, even even at a base level? The the, the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation is a solely amateur organization it's set up to in, in, in there's over a hundred there's over 120 now member federations globally um and it's and it's solely set up for developing this sport like i said before i was talking about the inverted triangle amateur mma is a very it's hard to come by you know done correctly it's hard to come by that they're they're and obviously, like I said, that the sport of mixed martial arts right now, it's so it's still so fragmented. It's done in many different ways in many different countries with no form of commonality. I keep pulling it back to like the boxing example again. So, so the premise of IMAF was set up. So, and that, that's what they, they approached me right at the start, and that's what kind of you know pricked up my ears and got my attention is that they weren't trying to take over the world. They, they weren't trying to be a UFC. They weren't trying to be a, They wanted to concentrate solely on the amateur development and making sure that we, without sounding cliched, is, you know, that the, the stars of tomorrow, you know, that's where they come through. Mm -hmm. Like the last, in, in 2019, the World Championships was in Bahrain. There was 550 athletes. There was over 50 countries. Countries. It's one of it's one of the most for working with world championship fights and stadiums and in Vegas and all the big that's all amazing. It's fantastic. But the fulfillment that I get for working because that's where I come in looking after and developing the officials because MMA has to work in unison, right? Just just as it is about developing the talent. It's the same for, for the officials. It's the same for everybody involved in the sport. And that's where I come in and help train the officials globally, get a single common unified rule set. Honestly, I can't, I, I can't. It's a very, very uh, close and personal project to me. I, I love what I do with them. And uh, I, I would implore anybody listening to get behind it because it's only going to get bigger, you know. And IMAF, IMMAF.org is where to go and find out all the information and you'll see just how many world champion and, and, and different regional championships we've had around the world and have a look at some of the young athletes, people that people see in the UFC right now, Brendan Allen, Amanda Hebus, even with the um, IMAF actually amalgamated with WMMA. That was another big organization. And you look at them, you've got Magomed um, Sharapov, Peter Yan, all these guys particularly from the Russian side, they all came through the, the amateurs too. People forget just how important that is. If we don't develop the amateurs correctly, that, you know, that, that conveyor belt and that, that continual stream of, of finding the stars is um, it's, it's not going to go about it in the right way. 
So Fight, Fight Island uh, has ended up being a great opportunity for uh, judges and officials across Europe to work fights. Is the IMMAF involved in, in that process at all? There's, if you look in Google, you'll find some very interesting news articles with IMF because obviously some of the some of the officials that I've helped nurture and train, and, and like I said, just to give you just to give you the scale of you know the World Championships, for instance, um, in Bahrain that are referred to, you know, uh, for over 500 athletes over 50 countries. In fact, in, so there's five days of competition actually five fighting days on the one day of competition there was 98 fights alone oh my god there, wow there was, there was four cages and i'm sat there like an like at the central control what oh you know all the teams. <laughs> and it's it's absolutely phenomenal and the intensity of and the learning capability and the advantage that those officials will get being immersed in something like that with me sat you know, at the top of them, helping them and bring them together, we've produced some absolute world-class judges. And a name you, you've probably heard is Clemens Werner from Germany. A lot of respect yeah. for Clemens yes. Werner. He's Clemens is my boy. You know, he's like Ben and and Dave and them. He's he's he's, he's one of the guys that I've I've watched flourish. And and like I said, apart from you know, when I go and teach people, it, it's phenomenal. It's very fulfilling, but. I was going to say I'm teaching them. I'm, I'm kind of making suggestions, you know. I'm, I'm not merely teaching. I'm making suggestions to them. All, all, the, all the, the real nitty-gritty and the things that it's going to take to succeed, that absolutely comes from the individual, 100%. The work ethic and all the qualities, that I can't give them to somebody. I can, I can beat you over the head with the theory and the knowledge all day, and I'll put it to you in such a way that you will not forget and explain it to you in a good way. But when those guys or girls take that information and then they go on to become what they have, Clemens is a fantastic example. Clemens, Vito from Italy. There's so many guys that have now came through that, just as they do with fighters. Fighters come on, get to a good world stage with amateur, get gain as much experience as possible, and then prove themselves on the world stage. It's exactly the same for officials exactly the same process that's very cool and and i really love that you were able to tell us about um you know just the way it works with like 98 fights in one day that's insane um <laughs> yeah one day there was there was four I, I was a little bit i was a bit i was a little bit pissed off actually because i wanted to break i wanted it to be 100 but we lost oh, a couple yeah. of fights <laughs> I, I wanted to break the the three figure mark but we actually lost a couple of fights because and like i said honestly if you if if you saw the operation behind it it would blow your mind. It's absolutely incredible. And it's, like I said, it's one of the most fulfilling things, you know, that I do. You got young, young kids there, you know, 18, 90, you know, just, and the skill level, it's absolutely incredible. It's like any other sport. You look at the, you know, the young athletes now and put them in a team 30 years ago, they'd, they'd wipe the floor with them and kick their ass. And it's the same with the youngsters now. The level of them is it's astonishing. And all the names that you're going to hear in the next five or ten years, mark my words, they'll have came through that process. All righty. So you know, we're we're talking about obviously international fights uh and the international fight scene. Talking about I, I heard a story, I heard there's an interesting story behind one international 
uh, event that you worked. It was uh, the UFC's trip to Busan at the end of 2019, and you took a, a bullet train across South Korea. I'd love to hear the story behind this. I did. I, it was cool because it, it was the last, that was actually my last trip of that year. And 2019 was, I look back on 2019 and I'm like, I'm mesmerized because it was the, if I showed you how many countries I was in and out of, you know, it was the busiest year I've had in, in by far. It was, I was here, there and everywhere. So what I did is I actually spoke to the UFC and said, Hey, look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to book my own flight for this. Is that okay? Can we do it? And, you know, we'll work something out. And they said, yeah, no problem. And when I was looking at it and actually flying into Busan was quite difficult. So I flew into Seoul, obviously the capital of South Korea and Seoul to Busan is still quite a distance. So I made it my own little adventure and uh, I, I booked myself on the bullet train and stuff like that. It was just, it was so cool. And, and Ben was there. I, I worked with, but Ben went, he went a different route. So he flew direct into Busan, but I was just doing my own little thing. And then we met up when we got there. It was It's one of the most memorable trips I've had. And it's, a, you know, all the countries I've been around the world, they all give me something a little bit special. Uh, I try and take something away from all of them. But South Korea is a, a, it's an incredible place. And that was a that was a fitting end to that year. It was it was phenomenal. That's really cool. So, how do you feel about the current state of the criteria? Is there anything you would change if you could for the criteria? Yes. Yes. No, not really. Um, I think the criteria is pretty concise. We're working on it all the time. You know, I'm actually I'm I, I part of the committee. I'm part of the ABC's Rules and Regs Committee, where we sit down with other noted and very well-versed people in this sport. And we talk about potential changes. We talk about things that we could do to perhaps make the sport better, more understood. But I think the criteria right now is, you know, it's not the finished article. Obviously, it's things will, you know, like I said about evolution, it's not, it's not the, let me put it to you this way. It's not the car we have to worry about. It's the people who's driving the cars. Mm -hmm. That's where the emphasis goes. So the car, I'm pretty happy with right now. I think they got the engine, still a little bit of fine-tuning, a little bit of tweaking here and there, a few modifications as years go by, but the vehicle is pretty damn good. We just need to make sure that the drivers we put in the vehicles are even better. When you say the drivers, are you talking about uh, the quality of officials or, or quality of regulators? Uh, you know, who, Everyone. Who are you talking? Everything. Yeah, well, everything. I, mean, I mean, primarily there, of course, I'm talking to, I'm talking about, you know, the, the quality of officials, referees and judges, we need to have. It's the same as anything. You know, I keep saying about any vocation, any industry, it's all about the level of competency. If you if you can get the best available people to do the job in hand, your rate of success is uh, indefinitely greater, if that makes sense. You know, if I'm going to always strive to put competent people to do a competent job chances are i'm going to get a competent result it's when we don't have that in place or there could be a chink in the armor somewhere or you know a little quirk or something like that and then that's when things start to fall down a little bit so one of the things scott and i uh wish more frequently happened in the sport is we'd like to see fewer warnings and and maybe uh, quicker to take points away when fouls occur uh 
Do you think there's room to get more strict with point deductions instead of warnings? You know, not not citing anything specific. Just yeah. Um, I understand what you're saying. Look, here's the thing. In a different rep, like, <laughs> I, I guess I have a, a certain reputation, um, and and I kind of I kind of find that reputation um, it's a little bit unfair sometimes. But it's it's majorly when I come to the US um, that that's when I find it. You know, people talk about it's it's like a funny thing. People talk about you know uh, referees. And they go, oh, hey, he he wants to be involved in the fight. Uh, well, that's my fucking job is to be involved <laughs> in the fight. But nothing could be further from the truth. When I go into referee a fight, I want to say two things. I want to say fight and I want to say stop. And 99% of the time, that's what happens because I'm an observer to watching the magic unfold. My job is to observe and if an infraction happens or something happens, then I have to do my job. You know, that's I have to do it. But I've kind of explained to people that that's not up to me. As a referee, my involvement in a fight, put it this way, a, a bad referee, a, a good referee, his involvement in the fight is decided by the fighters. So if something happens or the fighters create a problem, the referee will intervene and do his job. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. A poor referee or an inexperienced or slightly less competent referee, their interjection in the fight is decided by them because they're being over-officious or they're being over-egging it when they've got things in, in a fight. I'm always, I always keep the the little memo in my mind. It's kind of like a half step back, you know? Little infringements and fouls will happen in fights all the time. But if I was to verbalize on every single thing that happened in a fight. It, <laughs> you, you, you don't want to hear that from referees, you know? And obviously when you talk about taking points, you know, don't forget it's a three-round fight. Taking a point in something is, it, it, it could be quite monumental in the outcome of that fight. But that's, you know, that's not for me to determine. Sure. If, if, if something, if, if a fighter is fighting within the confines of the rules and doing everything they can, fantastic you're not going to hear from me but then if a fighter i mean this is what i'm saying like with with fans and people and but what do you want do you want to as a referee do you want them to be on there on the spot and deal with it or do you want them to ignore it it's kind of like when they say about um you know the thing about officials being able to talk publicly oh we want officials when we we need to hold these officials to account and we want them to speak and there's been many times and I've offered that instance up and they'll turn around and go, oh, he just wants the camera. And like, well, what the fuck do you want? You need, you, need to, you need to tell me what you want. You know, it's just, look, it, it is what it is. It's not a perfect world out there, you know, and, 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 and officiating is such, especially in MMA, it's such, a, it's such a finite thing. It's such a detailed thing as well, you know, but it's, it, I, I don't know. But but I do find that <laughs> I do find that my 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 frequent trips to the US will uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the accent I don't know if it's the tone but it's kind of like I, I could ask a fighter for a glass of water and people think that I'm trying to kill him in the ring it's it's crazy I've had <laughs> I've had some I've had some unbelievable instances and stuff like that but yeah it's it's crazy. 
you know, for what it's worth, and, and maybe Dan and I are cut from a different cloth because we're we're fascinated by the kind of the thought process and and I guess the the art of officiating. So whenever we do get instances where an official, you know, typically it's a referee, we almost never hear from a, a judge who would ever explain a, the reasoning there. That's usually backfired when it's happened. Um, but when we hear from a referee who will kind of t- either take us through the process or maybe just say, hey, this was something I maybe regret or something like that to some degree. I always appreciate it personally. I, I think it's always yeah. nice to hear why it is, even if it's something we look at because we're all fallible, right? And this is the thing, you know, but because what we have in this sport is some absolutely ridiculous, antiquated, out-of-date ideas that, well, no other sport does it. Well, that's why officiating in other sports is in such a fucking dire mess because if you're, if I'm going to speak about this sport and I'm going to speak about it publicly, no one needs to tell me how to do it. I'm, I'm not going to bring the if, – if as an official you are going out there on social media or having an interview or having a chat with guys like you and then saying stupid things and inflammatory things and ridiculous things and talking about – you know, you, you, you're going to get what you deserve, right? But if you're going out there and you're trying to help – articulate and educate about the sport and potentially some of the decisions that are made etc etc how the hell is that a bad thing how can that be a bad thing but you can't compensate for everybody because whilst there is a good group of us who can articulate and talk with professional reason about the sport and officiating there's also some other people who may not do such a such a good job but Listen, man, it's it's cost me work. It's actually it's cost me work because it really I've, has. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's cost me work wow. because I have dared to 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 offer explanation on something I've done. This is the thing, you know. It's if you if you offer reason or explanation on something you do or a decision making process, and you're doing it with professional courtesy, and you you know you're crossing all your T's and dotting your I's. I couldn't surmise it any better. But people still think that's a bad idea. Um, like I said, I'm 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 not going to change. Um, I, I think I think I talk well on behalf of the sport. I think I talk well on behalf of you know the officials. And believe you me, ev- for for every for every 100 opportunities I get to talk publicly on the sport, I'll accept two or three. <laughs> you know, I, I just. just I'm not out there talking about it every five minutes and stuff like that. It's just, I'm, I'm very selective. And obviously when, when you guys reached out to me, you know, obviously I'm seeing what you guys are doing. You, you've got a nice angle on this and, you know, you're looking at things objectively. You're looking at, you know, you can offer critique. You can, because that's fine. You know, people sure. think it's, it's okay to disagree. It's absolutely For fine. Sure. I, I'm a human being and, you know, and as such errors can be made or even if you offer reason or explanation to somebody if people want to disagree with it and they don't see it that way that's cool that's fine if we're doing it in a respectful debated open manner happy days you know what's not to love about that (laughs) i agree i'm I'm with you there (laughs) we definitely appreciate you joining us uh but could you could you tell us maybe clear something up for us how come a groin strike is really the only foul that gets that five-minute recovery period and not something like an eye poke? If, I, if, if you're poked in the eye and a doctor or ringside physician comes in, 
they can clearly see the subject matter at hand, right? Right. They look yeah. directly into your eye. So for want of a better description, if you get a groin strike, the doctor's not going to openly cup your testicles and have a good examination of them in the ring. So That'd we be have quite to a give sight. them a lot. <laughs> so we have to give them a lot of time to compensate for that difference. Okay. That makes no, sense. That, that makes sense. It does. I think a lot of people need to hear that, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, if we get the fabled dip kick, it's um, the, the examination that would be required is kind of <laughs> on live TV in, in, in a stadium of people. You're kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? You're kind of precluded from taking your normal route as a doctor, right? <laughs> not, not the ideal stage. Exactly. That's why we have, and fully, it's it's a good one you say that, talking about groin strikes, because, you know, that that's, like you said, the educational thing. Everybody, whenever you see somebody that gets fouled, you know, other than a groin strike, everybody, why didn't you give him five minutes? You didn't give him the five minutes. Well, there, because that's the law. I don't, I, he can't have five minutes. You know, the groin strike is the only rule in unified MMA where the fighter can avail himself the fighter remains in control of that five-minute window. Every other single instance, it comes back to the referee and the ringside physician. It's only the groin strike that the fighter could sit there, four minutes, 55 seconds, and then jump up and say, okay, I'm good to go. So just hypotheticals, because I, I mean, maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but I feel like I've seen fights where at times fighters are given some, some length of time for their eye to recover. When that happens, that is wrong, right? No, 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 no. Here's the thing. So in, in unified MMA, a, a fighter will have up to, put inverted commas around, up to five sure. minutes to recuperate. That means that we, it then comes down to the experience and the competency of the referee. If you get poked in the eye, for instance, obviously it's going to take a little bit of time to, to recover and clear. So we can call time out. We may have a dialogue with the fighter. We can elongate that five-minute window again by bringing in the ringside physician, bring in the doctor, let the doctor check them, et cetera, et cetera. But the written rule is upon a doctor's assessment or inspection, if he says that the fighter is good to go, then the fight must automatically restart. Basically, the fighter can't avail himself. But obviously, a good experienced referee, if we do see a fighter's hurt, you know, and some, you know, with eye pokes and other things, or or, or a concussive, you know, like a, a knee to a downed opponent, et cetera, we just try and use the time window that we have and just use it sparingly, you know, and just a little bit of common sense, a little bit of courtesy to the fighter, and, and try not to rush them back into the action. Thank you for allocuting that. Uh, that, that would, honestly, that's probably been the most helpful explanation i've had uh of the way eye pokes should be treated by officials so thank you for that um one one more question before we close out here is uh you know you mentioned uh, a, a theme i think of this has been talking about the misconceptions uh in the uh -huh. sport especially when training what are some of the biggest misconceptions that either people come to you with uh when it comes to you know either scoring criteria or the rules about how to officiate especially when it pertains to the fighter's uh, can you clarify any of that? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> you got plenty of time, whatever you got. <laughs> well, that there was a perfect one, you know. Every every foul, he's got five minutes. No, he fucking hasn't got five minutes. He don't have five <laughs> minutes. 
you know, judges as well. You know, are we tucking down at the end of the round? So fucking what, what happened for the other four minutes, 58 seconds? You know, just when you, if people think that, you know, we took him down, he ended up on top, he's won the round. No, people think that we judge fights on uh, octagon control. You know, that's like the, the criteria is all back to front. This, there are so many misconceptions, it's untrue. And that's why I said it's, I don't, I can't think of, I, I keep using the analogy of the upside down pyramid because the sport exploded so fast. It got, it got big so quick. And obviously, at the top of the tree is is is, is the, uh, you know the the mantle of the sport, you know the UFC, and obviously it's the, it's the you know they have the biggest prizes in the sport and the most prolific fighters, the most prolific fights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obviously, everything that normally underpins that, you know, from from a deep developmental process, is it's kind of trying to play catch up, and and a great example of that is the reason that we're talking here now. Obviously, with even the unified rule set, the unified rule set is anything but unified. You know, there's still so many, even in the US, there's so many differences in quirks. But listen, it's it's changed more in the last three or four years than it has the last 15 combined for the better. You know, slowly but surely, things are starting to evolve. Things are starting to come together. There's commonality, there's uniformity. Obviously, you know, unified, but... In terms of, it just astounds me that on a sport, even some of the practitioners at the very, very top, some of the most seasoned, well-versed people with the, with the biggest prizes in the sport, they're not completely aware of the rules. I don't know any other sport that happens in. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other sport that happens in. If I if I'm playing football like off soccer and I'm running with the ball and I suddenly stop and pick it up, I know there's a fucking problem. You understand? Yeah. Like we said with the boxing thing, if I'm boxing, I suddenly jump on someone's legs. I know there's a problem. If I'm driving a Formula One car and I try and reverse out the pit lane, guess what? <laughs> there's a fucking problem. But MMA, we're still so far away from that. But to bring it back, like I said, the reason is, is because it's the inverted uh, pyramid. The sport is kind of exploded out. It doesn't fit the clothes anymore. It's a bit like Tom Hanks when he went to bed and he woke up and he was fucking massive. And he, his clothes don't fit him anymore. And the clothes are the people and the rules and all the understanding, but it's going to catch up. There's there's some amazing people in the sport and, you know, the commonalities there. And it's when I'm, when I'm old and rocking back and forth in a chair, I'll probably, uh, people will wonder why I was getting so animated and irate. Uh, you know, actually, and real quick, I do want to ask one more quick question because you kind of reminded me while you were talking about this. We have, I don't know how much American football you've ever watched, but there are rules, you know, rules experts or former officials who will kind of opine on what's going on in, in, a, in a certain rules situation. Do you think that the UFC like either would benefit or really could use someone like that? You know, some, it doesn't have to be you, but someone who can really eloquently explain hey what's going on like why why would a fight be scored this way why would a referee do this absolutely that absolutely would help you know and this is the thing where like i i take it as a personal responsibility you know i've got like i said when when you hear people like you know ben cartledge ben who i class as a world-class judge i would have him sat to my left or right in any fight in any place for any prize in the sport that's how good he is you know and he's and, and and as many like him, like I said, the guys in, in the US, you know, that A team, that, that select band. 
that those people are there and you know like I said, but, but we're also going to be realistic. You know, I, I talk about that when I said about if we were in a soccer stadium, there's, there's this thing about MMA where a lot of people will fucking lose their minds because, you know, he said this and he, he said, she said, blah, blah, blah. We can't, we can't get to a utopia where every single person on the planet agrees with every round in every fight and that it's just not attainable. You know, you, you can't get there. But I think that, you know, like talking to commentators is another. The commentators carry so much weight and emphasis, it's untrue. They're talk, they're beaming the info to millions of people at the drop of a hat. If they are giving misinformation, that takes years to backpedal and fix. Mm-hmm. When you're used to hearing the same thing all the time for years and years and years, broadcast down your teletubes to your ears at home. And, you're, and you are the layman, you know, you're just the casual or you're a fan and this, that and the other. It's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to... Um, Deprogram. Yeah, it's just a longer thing. But that's why I have, like, I'll give you a, I'll give you a cracking example here. Dan Hardy. Um, when Dan, who I think is quite possibly the best analyst in the game right now, um when he first got the job with the UFC, when he was going to get down this, the route of the, the, the commentary thing, he called me and he said, hey, um, I need to know when your next seminar is. And I said, oh, okay, it's a bit late for that now, mate. You've, you've had, you fought at World Championship. And now you want to know the rule. What the fuck, what's wrong with you? And he said to me, he said, look, no, between you and me, he said, um, I'm now going to be commentating for the UFC and I want to know what I'm talking about. I nearly fell off my f-ing chair, you know. John Gooden did the same thing. These guys, they, you know, how can you not want to even? And like I said, even if we could have a discussion with people, and you may not necessarily uh, agree, but they, they, they done their level best to at least try and get hold of and understand the correct information, so that when they're broadcasting and talking to people and explaining to them they're kind of writing so many wrongs. It's such a powerful tool. You know, the, 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 the broadcasters and the commentators are so powerful in this sport um, in terms of education and, and getting a wide, the widest possible audience to understand exactly what the officials potentially could be up against or exactly what they're doing. It's, it's critical. I'm glad you named the that commentary team because they really do stand out, at mm-hmm. least from our perspective, as the the two that work together most often. And they very clearly will use the right terminology. They'll they'll kind of walk the right line in explaining what's going on and and really getting that information across to people. I feel like they're almost like they're almost like your Trojan horse if you're trying to get that information. And in. these are the ones. Yeah, they're very because I'll can add him up the wall and said, listen. <laughs> Make sure you get the. <laughs> I've told them, make sure you get this information. But even like all joking aside, like um, a DC um, uh, recently, uh, Ben might have told you about. He reached out to him and stuff. Like I'm always, you know, he, and DC has been talking more uh, openly about that. You know, the fact of this is what the judges are actually looking for. This is this is what they're doing, and this is what they're potentially looking for. And when somebody, you know. DC's a legend of the sport, you know, ex-Olympian, two-weight world champion. Everybody loves him. And when he's on, I think he's a damn good commentator too. And when he 
is obviously doing the biggest fights, all the pay-per-views, when he's dropping in those bits of information, he, he's covering so much ground so quickly for for, for uh, officials. And it's just, it's fulfilling and it's great when you get people like that going out their way to, to, to get the correct information and, and make the sport better for everybody. It's awesome. That's awesome. And I, you know, I think that pretty much is a, is a great place for us to, to end it here. So Mark, thank you so much for everything. I think we've, we've all learned a lot and I hope that our listeners have learned a lot as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it guys. I enjoyed the chat. Dan, like we said right before, right at the top of the show, this was a fantastic listen uh, for for you and I, and I hope everybody who stuck with us and, and listened to the things that Mark had to say uh, and and speak with us about, I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope you learned a few things. Uh, but but overall, I really was just taken by how much Mark very clearly cares about this sport. Very passionate man. It, it's you know I think that goes gets lost on most people who when they just see the referee in the cage are like okay what what has this guy done before you know what what's he, what's he going to screw up now you know or or they're like oh yeah i trust this guy he's good i think you get one of those two reactions from people typically if they think about the referee at all before the fight right. um but they don't think about just how much they actually care about the sport to want to be able to do this for a living when <laughs> it's a very thankless job typically. Oh yeah. Everyone at the top level that are uh, refereeing and judging these fights, they, they care very, very much. And I would imagine at the lower level too, that you don't get into it because you don't care. Probably everybody who, who has, you know, sat in the chair cage side to judge or everybody who's stepped in as the third man, the third woman, uh, or the, the other person, the other individual in the cage. Uh, I would say that probably all of them, at least possess some passion for martial arts and, and mixed martial arts. So, but, but that really came across from Mark. Uh, and, and I hope that a lot of people picked up on that as well, because that's, that's what we get whenever we talk to officials uh, in private is the, the passion they have for this work. They care. They really do care for sure. And I don't know if everybody knows that well, they should know it. They should. Everyone know it. Everybody cares. <laughs> well, let's get into this weekend. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is a big fight weekend, too. You know, <laughs> we're going to kind of squeeze this in at the end. Uh, UFC 258 pay-per-view coming from UFC Apex. They were already at uh, Apex last weekend, and then looks like they're going to be here for the foreseeable future. Championship fight at welterweight. Yeah, Kamara Usman, Gilbert Burns for the belt. Supposed to happen a while back, right? And then Burns got COVID. So this was supposed to happen two consecutive times or two times last year. It was first, yeah, it was going to be the one... Uh, when Usman ended up fighting Masvidal, it was supposed to be that night, and that had to be canceled because yeah, he got COVID. Um, but then it was supposed to be pushed into. I, I spoke with both the fighters actually um, earlier this week, and Gilbert was saying that it was pushed to. They were they were aiming for November, late November, and then it ended up being more like December twelfth, and then that had to get canceled. I believe it was that uh, Usman was injured, okay. so they pushed that fight again. And here we are. Here we are, February. Well, how do you how do you see this fight going down, Dan? Um, I gotta see. I gotta know what you're, you're thinking. I'm really intrigued to see what would happen if Usman takes him down. How Burns is off his back because he's you know world champ at jujitsu. So I wouldn't worry at all about what his game is off his back. I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to go that route. The one thing that kind of struck me when I was talking with Kamaru this week was he said we're all going to see. 
what happens. And I, I don't think he meant that as kind of like a, a you know, a broad tease of it like, oh, I don't want to make a prediction. We'll see. I think what he meant, he seemed to have some sort of perceived mental edge there. Like, like he okay. seemed to almost, and this is me interpreting. This is my interpretation. Uh, but it did. I got the sense that he was pretty confident based potentially on past experience. Right. I just want. I just want to clear up. I, I wasn't. I wasn't saying we don't. I don't want to see what Burns can do off his back. Like he's unproven or anything. I'm curious to see how Usman would deal with being on top of a world class uh, grappler. Okay. Now I understand. So what you're saying. yeah, I wasn't discrediting uh, Burns on his back. No, I didn't. So I, I just thought I, that I would be an interesting po- uh, part of the fight. Um, I think Usman probably gets a decision. I don't know. It's a really tough one for me because Usman's really, really good. So. He's fantastic, but he is <laughs> traditionally not a finisher. Not a fan. Yeah, I would I would expect a decision here, but I don't I don't know that he wouldn't be able to get a finish. But I I think I have a lot of faith in Burns' ability to be durable, and you know again there's that track record from Usman, and these guys know each other so well that I I almost feel like you know as much as they might have been able to diversify their skill set at least a little bit in the past few months training separately. I, I don't think there's going to be a ton of surprises from them in there. So uh, yeah. I would have to, I'd have to think it's going to go to a decision, but I, I feel pretty confident that it's going to be Usman. Yeah. That, that's another interesting uh, thing about this fight is that they are training partners. So they know each yeah. other very well. Yeah. Uh, no, we'll see. Maybe, maybe the fight is similar to the Covington fight where it keeps it standing. And I don't know. I think it's a very intriguing fight. I'm excited to watch it. I- I could see it being a, a stand-up battle because, you know, neither one of these guys was a, a striker coming up. You know, the, Usman came from wrestling. Burns came from the grappling world, submission grappling, competition grappling, that kind of thing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, and it's not one of those things where you'd say, like, it cancels out, I, I feel like. But they've, they've been working on their striking, and I'd be curious to see if that's where they go or if, if maybe they just take it everywhere. It's going to be a really fun fight. I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited for it. Yeah, me too. Who, who should we expect judging this one? Well, it, we didn't actually get to talk about that last week too much in the preview. Um, I I didn't truly know who we were going to. I was expecting the same kind of same type of names we see in Vegas. But actually, it, we ended up getting a few surprises. We saw Jaron Vallel for the first time in Vegas, who my understanding, he's worked in other roles uh, officiating in Vegas before. But this was the first time as a judge. And, you know, we, we've got guys like Rick Winter, who's not always uh, in Vegas, but we've seen him there plenty of times in the last year. Uh, it, it was it was a bit of a surprise, but I do think there's probably going to be a few more uh, of the you know typical judges we were seeing last year at UFC Apex. Okay, you know obviously Sal D'Amato was there last week. Chris Lee, um, we had Adelaide are, Bird. You know, your typical mainstay yeah. with Adelaide Bird was there. Yeah, as another one we don't always see in Vegas these days. She's she's a Vegas based judge, but um, we saw her too. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably going to be a few more of the names that we do typically see okay. than we had last week. But you know, I didn't think. On the whole, it was such a bad collective last week either. Wasn't, you know? I don't think it was bad at all. No. It was, they were solid. And I expect the same uh, this weekend. I'm sure I don't know who's going to be officiating that title fight, but <laughs> I do expect them going to be to be needed for it. But also, I am not worried about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really am, especially in Vegas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Vegas, Vegas, California, both top notch. So. Which is hilarious because when you hear people online, they'll be like, "Oh, Vegas, and you can't trust Vegas." It's like, where where do you want the judges from? You want <laughs> yeah. them from Mexico? <laughs> I'm sorry, we went over that a couple weeks ago. We did, we did. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm not trying to be cruel to you know, the fine working judges in New Mexico. It's just there's uh, there's levels. 
I would I would take the New Mexico commission over Texas or Virginia. I, I would, would take just about every commission over Texas. I'm sorry, Texas. It's, <laughs> it's just the way it is. But, but you know, enough about commissions, enough about judges. What other fights do you want to see on this one? This is not the the um deepest card in terms of real top end value, but I, I think there's some fights of interest. Definitely there's some some good ones. I wa- I was interested before it got canceled or postponed. I was interested in Jimmy Rivera versus uh Pedro Munoz versus yeah. Pedro Munoz and I wanted that one too, but obviously it's gone and gosh, I hope we don't lose more. But hey, I'm ex- I'm excited to see fellow Jersey boy, Jim Miller, back Former in action. Former guest of the show. Taking on Bobby Green, two vets going at it. I think You will always pick a Jim Miller fight. It's so it's so I mean I, I think Jim could win this one by sub. That's what I'm going to I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Jim sub guillotine. I am going to say I think it's a decision. I actually feel best about saying it's a decision. I'll pick Jim. I'll pick Jim. I, I think you. I think the grappling probably could be a a boost for him. Although you know Bobby Green is no slouch at all. Right. Both guys have have a ton of fights and have a total of being finished nine times. Yeah. So that I mean over almost a hundred fights and you only got finished. I, I feel nine pretty times. good about it going so, the distance. I'll pick Jim, but I honestly I feel very uh, torn uh, about this one. I could totally see Bobby Green taking it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just going to be a really good fight. You know where Bobby Green uh, is from? Where? Fontana, California. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> well, what, what are you looking forward to? I want to see. Uh, I want to see Adolfo Vieira. We haven't seen him. That's a. He's, he's going against guy. Anthony Hernandez, the former LFA uh, middleweight champion. Who you know, he's he's gotten off to a little bit of a rocky start to his UFC run. He's he's uh, one and two now. He he had the the no contest. Uh, a victory that was overturned on the Dana White Contender Series as well. But, you know, he, he's got a win over Brendan Allen. This is this is a guy who can fight. Having said that, I feel really good about uh, this being just a showcase for Vieira. I feel like he's always in it, some kind of showcase. I I want. I, I mean, he's really good. Uh, just want uh, Hernandez's last fight. He lost to Kevin Holland, so he did. That guy's on a tear. But Vieira, really excited about him. I, I think he can do really good things if he sticks to his bread and butter. And doesn't doesn't become one of those grapplers that falls in love with their hands. No, I, I'm uh, I'm gonna pick sub, and I'm gonna say I'm gonna say round one sub. Arm triangle, I think for uh, for Vieira. I'm, I'm doing. I'm uh, obviously, sure. it's gonna be a go go plot. I've been waiting for this. It's gonna be that. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be something. Just will, will it into existence? The thing is, I just don't see it being on the ground with Vieira on the bottom. That would be that would be how it gets there. Would be really interesting. Uh, hey, you never know. Maybe maybe uh, he, he gives up the position for the submission and just you know pre- manifests himself, or maybe he's like, gosh, I always wanted to be the first guy to get the go go plot in the UFC, so I'm just gonna make it happen. Does it count that Nick Diaz has one in Pride and now Pride got bought out by the UFC? It does not count. That oh. one is fantastic, and also it doesn't matter that that fight was overturned. I don't care. That one still counts. But oh. we're still talking about even even if you count that one, that has. That's like 14 years ago, Dan. Which is even more impressive in itself. So oh, it's a long time. I, I I've been missing my. I want to go 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 for a go go. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Vieira arm triangle round one. And you got go go Plata. Definitely go go Plata. Arm bar. Realistically, arm bar. But oh, give me wow. the go go. Oh. And that's it for us for the week. Thank you very much once again to Mark Goddard for joining us. We we. Couldn't appreciate more him coming on the show and, and explaining to us, speaking to us, and everything. We hope to have him on again. 
Yeah, that was that was fantastic. Thanks again to Mark. Thanks to you all for listening. Have a great night. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the weekend's fights.